0: Friends, it's the end of the month of March, and as an Indonesian, this is definitely my least favorite time of the year. You know why? Tax season, right? I know Jesus tells me to give to Caesar, what is Caesar, but I gotta admit that I often do it quite begrudgingly, especially because of the seemingly never-ending supply of corrupt government officials this country like in this country like i don't want to get all political but i don't want the income that i work and put my blood sweat and tears into earning be used to finance some kids rubicon or to pay the wages of those who seemingly fearlessly obstruct justice or would willingly facilitate powerful people to do so for a price truly outrageous, right? Some of the things that some people can get away with here in this country, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for a great multitude of things the government has done right. Nonetheless, there are clearly always some real rotten apples who get into these positions of power and are intent on using the system for their personally, personal gain. And consequently, normal citizens like me who are at the mercy of their power become highly suspicious or cynical towards the entire system. The motivating me and making me highly hesitant to participate in whatever it is they're doing, like by paying my taxes, right? Am I crazy here or has anyone ever felt this before? But you know who can certainly relate? The nation of Israel in the Bible, especially when they were in exile or under the Roman occupation. Not only can they relate, but the injustice and persecution that God's people suffered in this time is much more severe than anything we Christians encounter today. Okay, so although it's nowhere near as bad for us Christians in Jakarta in 2023 than it was for the Israelites in Babylon in 586 BC, one of the main things that the series that we've been on in Genesis has emphasized so far is that we are all ultimately an exile, right? We're all living east of Eden, removed from the source of life, outside of where we're created to be, right? Face to face with our Creator, living in a world that's corrupted by sin and full of sinful people. This is the context in which any of our work takes place. So since we're doing a series on work and faith, or faith and work, we will be studying one of the clearest and most poignant instructions from God to His people who are living and working in the context of exile. And through this, I hope that we'll be enlightened about what God has in mind, about how we ought to conduct ourselves while in exile, right? It's the exile's SOP, if you will. A passage that might be familiar to many of us, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 to 14. Let's read it together. Thus says the Lord. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surveying elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people of Nebuchadnezzar or whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elash, the son of Shaphan, and Gomeriah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. And come pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the Bible's clearest instructions. But what the mission of God's people is in whatever working conditions we find ourselves in. And this morning, I hope that we can see that there are at least three very practical things we are taught to do in order to not feeling, uh, falling into this cynicism or deflation, right? That feeling, which at least I know, I'm prone to while being in exile, okay? Our three points. How we ought to work in the context of exile. In exile, we must work, one, avoiding compliance and resistance, two, pursuing peace, and three, without lamenting the limits of our labor. Avoiding compliance and resistance, pursuing peace, without lamenting the limits of our labor. May the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear today to receive the Lord's instruction. Okay? Let's get into it. In exile, we must work, avoiding both compliance and resistance. So in the passage that we just read, you see that the first four verses is dedicated to hammering home and making sure that we know exactly to whom this context, uh, this instruction is given. Because it's important. And as we have established earlier, it's the context of Israel's Babylonian captivity. All of their metal workers, all of their officials, they've been taken away. Everyone who has skill and is important is gone from Jerusalem. And just to refresh you guys about how they get there, is that the story is that God had promised a land to their ancestor, Abraham. Then God brought them out of slavery from Egypt to possess this land that they were in. But when they got there, Israel sinned. All of their officials refused to trust God and refused to do His just and loving ways. Instead, they repeatedly worshipped other gods and exploited the poor. Right? And God wouldn't just let that go. He wouldn't let it slide. So God sent the Babylonians to Israel who proceeded to wreck things and carry many Israelites from their promised land into exile in this foreign land. Now, I also already alluded to in the introduction how this context of exile being displaced from where we're supposed to be is the existential condition of every human due to sin. Because of our sins, we've been spiritually separated from God, Right, no longer able to be near God as we're supposed to be, and we are left having this God-shaped hole in our hearts, unable to find lasting and meaningful satisfaction through the things of this world, never feeling truly at home no matter how much we have here, and that's because we're made for another kind of world, another kind of place, so we feel like strangers here. And so if we're truly in Christ, our deepest longing is actually to return to this true home that we can freely enjoy fellowship with our Heavenly Father. That's the ultimate form of exile that we're in. However, what we find in our passage here are actually instructions for a more proximate form of exile, whereby because we are Christians and we are now strangers to the world that is still enslaved by sin, we are now living in an environment whereby the dominant cultural values here will be antithetical to our own. We're going to live in a world that tells us that financial security and personal comfort are necessary components of a good life, whereby our personal or our own tribe's experience and flourishing is the highest good above everyone else's. And we're under increasing pressure to affirm all sorts of worldviews and philosophies that contradict what we believe at risk of social exclusion. But the life and teaching of Jesus certainly runs contrary to this. If we're trying to follow Jesus in any public way at all, we will soon find that we cannot escape this pressure, always having to deal with the world, constantly trying to push us one way, and Jesus showing us that we must always go the other So we're in a tough spot, constantly having to go against the grain and fight an uphill battle. The problem is, there are two ethics, right? Two ways of handling this very frustrating situation, what it can be, that are often proposed that are both equally detrimental, equally counterproductive to what God actually calls us to. And we will call this the ethics of compliance, and the ethics of resistance. Okay, let me explain what I mean. So on the one hand, there is this ethic of compliance. This would be what the Babylonian captors would propose to the Israelites. And it's part of the reason why, back then, their empire was profoundly successful. Because what the Babylonians would do to control the nations that they conquered was not mainly intimidate them by violence or subjugate them into slavery, although there were occasionally a bit of both, but what they found was most effective is to have the highest-ranking officials of the countries that they conquered assimilate into Babylonian society, right? We see this clearly in the book of Daniel uh, where Daniel and his three friends who were educated, very high-competence Jews, they were given Babylonian names and they were put in these positions of influence in the courts of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the message that the Babylonians are trying to send there is that if you play by their rules, if you play their game and be like them, you will be offered plenty of opportunities of career advancement. advancement. Therefore, they're incentivized to lose their Israelite identity and worship the Babylonian king. Now, how does this happen for us today in Jakarta 2023? Right? Unlike Daniel, we didn't have and Nebuchadnezzar forcing us to bow to him, but based on my observation at least, it seems like there's just one idol that our culture readily bends the knee to. It's mammon, isn't it? The god of money and materialism. We live in a society where chuan is number one. And are expected to make ethical, relational, spiritual, whatever kind of sacrifices to do whatever it takes to maximize income because the culture says that if we comply, and if we do this and we have enough money, then supposedly we are offered all the kingdoms of the world. We finally will deserve the respect and affirmation we crave, we will finally be able to have the freedom to experience all the pleasures we have ever dreamed of and have the access to the healthcare that will make us live longer, the education that will make us more wise, and even possess the power to be above the law. Friends, this is what the ethics of compliance, the heart of its message is, is trying to convince us that faith is actually unnecessary and it's offering us a very attractive alternative. Something that looks easier and safer and that will earn us more if we comply. And we must resist. But on the other hand, we can also resist to the extreme and have this ethic of resistance towards the place to which we've been exiled. This is what we can read uh, what was previously advocated by Jeremiah's rival, the false prophet, Hananiah, in chapter 28. Hananiah promised that the Lord will soon break the yoke of Babylon so basically, his advice is for Israel to withdraw, remove themselves completely from Babylonian society, which means staying in the Kebar Canal where they were camped out, figuring out the bare minimum they had to do to not get killed, so, and trying to wait this out while having one foot out the door, just waiting for their opportunity to exit. Now, this is probably what a lot of Christians' community, at least, the ones that I grew up in, perceived to be correct, the correct posture to be in exile. Right? Whereby, basically, they're preaching what I call a two-chapter gospel, where the premise is that chapter one, the world is so sinful and depraved and anything on a Christian is dangerous and corrupting, so we should avoid it as much as possible, because the real good, the real great part, is really going to come in chapter two, later, after we die, where we get to have heaven in eternal life, in eternal bliss with God face-to-face, and you wouldn't want to miss that. Therefore, whatever we're occupying ourselves with right now, whatever we're building, whatever we're working on, isn't that meaningful. It's all going to burn anyway, and work itself is seen as a in necessary inconvenience for us to survive in this fallen world. Except for, of course, church work, because churches does the ministry of evangelism that get people to heaven, which is the only thing that's going to last, so you better put all your time and money into ministry lest you waste your life. Have you heard some version of this before? Now, there are lots of problems that we can discuss in relation to these two ethics and why we should avoid them. But in the interest of time, let me just propose to one, which seems to me to be the main one, right? That this, these two ethics, are simply not what our Lord has instructed us to do. We are certainly never supposed to be conformed to the image of this world as the ethics of compliance suggests. And although there are elements of truth in the idea, we're never supposed to completely withdraw from the world with an ethic of resistance either. Rather, the Lord specifically tells them that Hananiah was lying about this in verse 8 and 9. And what the Lord really instructs us through Jeremiah is both shocking and counterintuitive. Because what God wants for his people to have is actually an ethic of peace. Okay, which is point two. In exile, we must work pursuing peace. Now, check out verse 5 and 7. This would seem absolutely nuts to the people of Israel back then. He's saying, build houses and plant gardens there. Eat from the gardens, right? In our day, it's probably equivalent to tell them to move in, set up shop, make businesses there. Plan to settle there for the long term. Go get married and have kids and grandkids. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply and seek the welfare and even pray for the welfare. And remember friends, what city we're talking about here? This is Babylon. It's the capital of the very empire that conquered their land, that destroyed their homes, that killed their family and friends, the city of evil. Home of the absolute worst people. It's crazy. How and why would God instruct them to do such a thing? And the answer to these two questions are actually quite related. So let's talk about the how first. Since we've been on the series of the book of Genesis, where was the last time, if you recall, God told humans to work the ground, right, to do some gardening and subdue the earth, and then to be fruitful and multiply? That's right. It's the Garden of Eden. And in fact, just to hammer this home, right, the word that's translated here in the ESV as welfare is actually the Hebrew word shalom. And in a lot of churchy circles, it's a pretty popular word. And most people think it just means peace. But actually, in the Hebrew understanding, shalom is just, it's not just the state of the absence of conflict. It's much richer than that. Shalom actually refers to the state of wholeness and completeness. A state where nothing is missing or wrong and everything is working together harmoniously. And do you know when was the only time ever when this was truly an experienced reality? That's right. The Garden of Eden. So what the Israelites were supposed to do, although they were in Babylon, they were supposed to live as though they were in the Garden of Eden. Meaning, what Jeremiah had in mind for the Israelites to do is not just to have some kind of truce with the Babylonians where we know we don't like each each other, but let's not get in each other's way because no one's going to benefit from that. Rather, he is encouraging this active participation in the cultivation of order and life that God wanted the, hu- the humans to partner with Him in the first place when He created us and put us in the Garden of Eden. Are you following me? So I think this makes for some very practical principles for the kind of things that we should be busying ourselves with now as we're here in our own personal Babylon. And it's not only church work, although that's very important. I myself have dedicated my life do it, but that's not the only thing worth doing because what God wants for us is actually to join Him in what He's been doing, cultivating Shalom. He wants us to make creation flourish and or to help Him to do so and to do it in every level, spiritual, social, economic, psychological, and He wants us to participate in the healing of what's been broken. Through medicine, justice, education, there are really so many ways that we can be involved in creating shalom, and there are surely things that you, friends, are personally gifted and positioned to ideally and fruitfully participate in. So really, we should all ask ourselves a very simple question. If people started behaving more sinfully and are following their sinful desires, would your business profit? Would your industry grow? Right? That rules out quite a lot of things, doesn't it? Is your business capitalizing on or trying to minimize sinfulness or brokenness? Does what you do actually help anybody flourish into the image of God? Friends, I have no authority to tell you personally what the right answer is, aside from the fact that the right thing to do is to go on this process of asking God about how I can contribute in creating and cultivating shalom in the exact place where God has placed me. Now, I do understand, friends, that some of you might not feel like you're in a position to worry about that right now. Right? I'm well aware that there has been mass layoffs everywhere, and perhaps some of you are in a situation where you just got to do what you got to do to make it through today, and we can't worry about shalom right now. In other words, you're far from flourishing, or at least you feel that way, and you don't have shalom over your life right now. And if this is the case, I urge you and encourage you and plead with you to reach out to us or another community of Christians that you trust because it's truly both our duty and delight to help you bring to have shalom in whatever way we can. We actually have an entire ministry dedicated to that because there is a very pragmatic reason that God actually tells us for are participating in this work of bringing shalom. Verse 7 tells us that when our city, when our context finds shalom, there we too will find shalom. Meaning that when we're actively creating situations where images of God are flourishing, when we're in situations where relationships are reconciled, when people are all actively working to produce good and take care of each other, not only will our lives be better because it will feel a little more like the shalom of Eden, right? More wholesome and healthy and safe. More importantly, we will testify to this foreign land that we're actually the citizens of, to a different place. For our go, right, we are going to be fully aware that we're still in Babylon. And we're under no illusions that we're living back in this perfect sinless place like Eden. Because no matter how much shalom we attempt or even succeed to work towards, it will never be even close to how it's going to be when we're back home with Jesus. But the little bit of shalom that we can create is indeed real. Although it's certainly never eternal or universal, yet it is not in vain. Because the point of our presence here is to be a symbolic statement about the future destiny of the world. Our presence here is supposed to create an attractively, unique contrast culture that becomes a foretaste of the kind of place that will be here when our Lord returns. Or to use Paul's terminology, we are here as ambassadors. We represent and are loyal to a different kingdom. But we live here and are sent on a diplomatic mission of peace here, urging the world to be reconciled and to be shalomed with God because His kingdom is coming, and His kingdom is the eternal kingdom that will reign over all kingdoms, and it's coming, friends, actually has already, in fact, begun, Just point three. In exile, we must work without lamenting the limits of our labor. So the rest of the passage is pretty interesting to me, right? Because again, it's so counterintuitive. After God went out of his way to say that Hananiah is wrong, and that Israelites should build houses there, the very next thing he promises them in verses 10 to 14 is that he'll actually bring them out of Babylon where they're supposed to work so hard and build houses there, right? I mean, if he was going to take them out of there anyway, though not as soon as Hananiah thought, why would God tell them to settle in and, and go through all this trouble? And there are many explanations to this. But to me, it seems that the value of being in exile, or what you do in exile, is not actually measured by what, by what you can tangibly produce in exile. Rather, it seems like this is a time again, like, if you remember, in the Garden of Eden, God is putting his people to the test. Can they? Will we resist the allure of being assimilated to Babylon in the ethics of compliance? And will they be able to resist the false prophets who are advocating an ethic of resistance? And will they actually obey and pursue this ethic of peace, doing what it is God created us to do, even though we're in a foreign land, even though whatever we accomplish in this time, be temporary. In other words, in our work, it's not about how much we can produce. Rather, what God really appreciates is the posture of trust that we show as we endeavor in the work that He has put us in. Are you guys following me? Now, I could turn this up a notch and tell you that some of the things that we produce will be perfected when Jesus returns, right? Revelation 21 does says that the glory of the nations will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth, and it does say that God will make all things new, not all new things. So the Scripture does suggest that God isn't just going to burn everything and start from scratch. There is some kind of work that will continue. And therefore, though it doesn't save us, we still should strive to work excellently, Some of the work that we do do may be carried over into eternity and just to name drop a few people, you know, Tim Keller, Herman Bavinck, Tim Mackey, Grace Utanto, and more people who I admire and are smarter than me believes in this. So if you do believe in this and this gives you powerful motivation to do your work, I'm not going to fight you on that. You're in good company. I just couldn't go there myself. I don't personally believe I can produce anything that will make it into glory and we can discuss more about why later, but nonetheless, our work here is meaningful. But we can all agree, no matter what side you fall on in this discussion, that the Bible, and especially I'm thinking of the book of Ecclesiastes here, specifically and very explicitly teaches us that, above all, life on earth is temporary and fleeting, vanity, is the language that they use. Whatever good work that we manage to accomplish now, we will eventually have to leave to someone else who might undo all the good that we did. And we might not even live long enough to see the good that we're trying to create happen in our lifetime. That's just how life is, under the sun. Therefore, in this life, we cannot Work cannot be what we depend on for our deepest fulfillment and satisfaction. We cannot find our identity in our work or in what we can create or produce. Whatever it is, we cannot guarantee that it will last. So we can't have this prideful, triumphalistic attitude about our work as if the goal of our labor is to conquer everything for Christ and to make this world a Christian one through our own power. Well-meaning Christian friends, I've done this for hundreds of years and that didn't totally work out, did it? Right? Just look at the colonial era. But because we are still at the end of the day, limited, corrupted, sinful humans. We're gonna mess up as we still live under the sun. Therefore, the universal, eternal shalom that we're really craving, that we're really trying to see and experience, cannot come from our power. That's why if you read again our passage, we cannot miss the agency of God. I have sent you into exile. I will take you out. I have planned for you. And in fact, the Bible. Itself promises that God Himself will send us a Prince of Shalom, a Prince of Peace, the true One who can bring Shalom with no end. And we know, friends, that this promised peacemaker is none other than Jesus of Nazareth Himself, of whom it is said, when He was born, the heavenly host declared, Peace on earth among those with whom He is pleased. Because Jesus, friends, is the only one who is able to resist the ethic of compliance that the enemy was trying to tempt him to when he offered him the kingdoms of the earth if he would bow to Satan. And Jesus had all the authority and honor in the universe, but he didn't just judge us guilty humans from above. Rather, he came down to embody this ethic of peace. Because Jesus came down to give us His shalom. He was the whole and perfect humans that we all could be but failed to be. And Jesus gave us His life so that we can return from this ultimate exile that we have from God. Restoring to the wholeness the broken relationship that we have with our Creator when Jesus died and rose from the grave. So you free friends. Because of what Jesus did, we never need to lament about the limits of our labor even though whatever we do will not might not last we were never capable of bringing the Shalom in the first place and it was never about us getting the credit for bringing Shalom at all in the first place too but Jesus assures us that we will enter into this promised land of Shalom when this is all over where we don't need a son we won't live under the sun because as our call to worship tells us, God himself will be our light. And it is there that we truly see the fruits of our labor. It is only then will we experience the peace that we so badly hope for and we long to see. Therefore, Christians, We actually have every reason to boldly participate in bringing shalom in our city or wherever we are. The peace we make, although imperfect, is real and is meaningful, because it testifies to the coming kingdom. But the pressure is off, because it's not on us to bring the peace. God is the one who will perfect this peace, and all the pleasure is actually ours, because we actually get to partner with God in our little way in His efforts to bring shalom. You know, One of the best illustrations for this that I've heard is from my mentor about him washing his car with his grandkids. You you might have heard of this one before, right? So he was washing his car with his grandchild, and the kid was thinking he was washing his car, but all he was doing was really splashing around and playing with soap. The grandpa was doing all the cleaning, but he wasn't annoyed at all with the kid. He just delighted in the fact that he was doing it with him. And I feel like that's how the Lord enjoys cleaning up this sin-stained world with us. He knows that he's the one who's doing the real cleaning, but he doesn't feel like we're slowing him down. Rather, it is his absolute joy to partner with us in doing it. So will you do it with him? However, friends, if you don't feel like your ultimate exile hasn't ended yet, right, your exile with your Creator, and you're still complying to the world and what it's telling you to do, and you're scared actually about being God's partner. But somehow today, you still want to be. I tell you now that the Lord right now is offering you His peace. Trust in Jesus. Set your mind on Him. Stop trying to find this peace on your own, but return and rest to Him, and He shall be your salvation, and He will keep you in perfect peace you believe in that promise let's pray blessed are you lord the prince of peace you have made this world with wholeness you have made this world very good but we confess that we have ruined it in our selfishness and sin lord we are so undeserving of the gift of your son who restores our relationship to you. Father, give us your Holy Spirit that we may live in this restored relationship, that we may see the wholeness, the healing, and experience it that you have made possible for us. Father, help us pursue it and give us the wisdom to see how we can participate in your work of bringing peace on earth and enable us and empower us to do it because only you can do it and we are but participants, joyful partners that you, by grace, have included us into your work. In Jesus' name we pray.